In this episode of the Encourage and Inspire podcast, I'm joined by songwriter, producer, and music publisher, Curtis Richardson. Man, what another great episode uh, we're going to have today. Man, I was able to meet Curtis through New School Rules a couple years back, man, and we just kind of kept in touch via social media. Um, and this brother just an awesome, awesome cat that I'm glad I have the pleasure to know. Uh, we, we got into quite a few things, man. We talked about him, you know, his early his early success as a songwriter, you know, writing a hit record for Jennifer Lopez and LL Cool J, to also um, working with a lot of international artists and no one went to pivot at a time where people wanted to focus on international artists. And we also talked about his love for the music education space, the music publishing space, and teaching the next generation of creatives how to navigate the space for success. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And I can send it to you. Cool, wonderful. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Encourage Inspire Podcast. This is episode number 67 of the Encourage Inspire Podcast. And I've got a great colleague and friend with me today, uh, Curtis Richardson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be at the Encourage and Inspire Podcast with my good, 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 good friend, Darrell Brooks. Thank you so much, man. It's it's a pleasure. You know, we actually got connected through um, New School Rules, virtual yes. New School Rules in 2021. Yes, that's Hanka. Yes, Hanka, Hanka Maduro. Yeah, shout yes. out to her. She, shout out yeah. to Hanka. Shout out to Alex the Horse for me to, to that with Hanka. Uh, I think New School Rules is doing amazing things. So a- absolutely. Uh, so glad we were able to connect there. Right. I mean, she's an amazing person. I've actually been a partner with her bringing talent to new school now for a couple of years. And, you know, she just, they're just a great person. Her and her husband, Greg, what they put together with uh, in Rotterdam is something really, really special. And I'm just glad to have the opportunity that she gives me to not only bring talent, but to actually be a panel member and share my knowledge Um you know, because it's like, and I say this all the time, Curtis, there's a lot, a lot of people like me in the business being the fact that I have a disability and I'm, and I'm kind of carving my own path with a lot of people that, you know, with people who want to be like me in, in the sense of being in the record business as an executive or as a, as a, as a non-creative and want an opportunity, but because of the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the record business, unfortunately, from that from that perspective, not saying that there isn't any diversity, but I haven't seen a lot of people that look like me um, that people pay attention to that actually put on the forefront to give people like me an opportunity to do what I love to do. And a lot of that is because I can't live in the industry cities like the LA, the New York, the Atlanta, Miami, so on, so on. So if I had to do it from Orlando, Florida, where I'm, where I'm where I'm based, I've been here 30 years, originally from Brooklyn, New York, but, you know, grew up here in Orlando. So 
I'm just really fortunate enough to be able to have been able to carve out this path. It's a little unconventional. It's not easy to do, but I'm just having a, having a lot of fun doing it and meeting people like yourself. Well, it's a pleasure, and um, I'm excited to be on this journey um, with you. I think you are a powerful force, and we need your voice. You know, the fact that you have been working in, in music for quite some time, and, you know, you beyond your quote-unquote disability. Well, I don't, it's not a disability. It's more It's more to your advantage. Um, I think it gives you uh, a different perspective and mm. you give us the will and the strength to know you can achieve and, and do anything you set your mind to doing. So um besides the the knowledge and the wisdom that you're sharing with your 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 the your the, the students that you bring in or artists or what have you, you actually give them inspiration as well. So that's great. I, I appreciate that man. I appreciate that. So thank you. Um so I would like to start, you know, uh what's your earliest memories of music, man? I think that's so when I have a when I have somebody that 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 has a music background, I always like to ask this question because I get a lot of cool different responses to that question. My earliest music was just hearing a lot of music because, like, on my father's side of the family, they um, they were musicians. You know, my cousin was in a group called Instant Funk, which is a big late seventy or seventies like funk R and B band. They had like couple of big platinum singles. So I remember like just always hearing music and thinking that everyone created music, you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> you know, I just was accustomed to seeing my cousins play instruments and performing. And then, you know, my parents always played music everywhere I went to. My grandparents played music. It was just like everywhere I went, it was music, right? So it was kind of, in, it was embedded in me at an early age. Um, essentially, when I grew older, music was a way of just communication and just expressing myself. I was got into musical theater, which ended up being um, a really good stepping stone for me as far as how I create. But my earliest songs, I think the first two songs I remember singing as a, as a young person was... Captain and Tennille Love Will Keep Us Together and Tavares Rock the Boat. I remember those two songs distinctly. And I remember uh, Natalie Cole, This Will Be. And I remember thinking that was my mom singing it because she looked so much like my mother at the time. I was just like, I was like mom, mom. So I used to think that that was her and it wasn't really wasn't her. But, you know, that's probably why I ended up being a huge Natalie Cole fan growing up because I just like she reminded me of my mom a little bit. So that's cool, man. That's cool. And I know uh, from our, our talks, you know, off off this podcast that you, you kind of start a little bit later in your musical journey than most people do uh, as far as pursuing professionally. You know, what were what were what were you pursuing before uh, you decided to kind of go all, all in with music, you know, professionally? Uh, I was like I said, I was in theater when I was in high school. And I wanted to do musical theater. I thought I was going to be on Broadway doing something, you know. Um, but then I went to college, you know, because my family were there. For, my mother's side, they're all educators. Like, you know, get a degree, have a backup, as they always say. Mm -hmm. So I went to school. I went to Rutgers University, New Brunswick. And I had a dual major in journalism and labor studies. So my first thought was I was going to go into broadcasting. 
But then towards the end of my school career, as I call it, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll be a labor journalist, you know, work for like unions to unearth, you know, injustices in the workplace and things of that nature. And then I graduated and I and I worked for a labor union for a couple of years and I just didn't feel like it was a good fit for me. Yeah. So then I worked for a company called Boston Equitzer, which is like a, you know, financial banking um, for a firm. And I worked in, you know, stock recovery department where, you know, we just, we basically, you know, sought out estates to, you know, so they, they were where they had stocks, you know, just kind of matching stocks with estates or families. And then I worked in doing proxies for companies, which I did their board of directors, their voting, you know, created their voting material, went through, a, you know, dealt with the whole legal process and security of their voting. Um, and I did that for quite some time. And then as I was doing that, I was writing songs on the side, like just writing songs because I really started to really get a get a kick for it, like a habit of wanting to do it. Um, um, and I got that first opportunity through my friend, Kwame Viapre, um, who I went to college with. And he invited me to a studio. And, I and you know, at that time, I had been writing songs, but never recording songs. No one told me that the recording part was like the fun part. So you take <laughs> your songs and you transform them into recordings and other people are singing your songs. So seeing that magical process kind of got me going. And then I was able to work with these two producers, one named Michael Moon, Ruben, Michael Ruben, we call the Moon. And uh, D. Moet. So those are the two people that I really started really cutting my teeth with on a consistent basis of writing songs. And I think D. Moet mainly because I spent a lot of time, I think a few years, and I was actually there when he produced Hate Me Now for Nas and Puffy. Mm. Um, yeah, mm. I, I remember the original production when he worked with Foxy Brown and so many make corrupt. He worked with so many major hip hop artists. Mm. But he actually showed me the art of song structure, production, um, how to uh, approach vocal production. Right. You know, how you know the difference between feel and technique. Um, so he, you know, Demo was definitely my, I call him my professor, my mentor. And um, I got my first cut with him, my real legitimate cut. I had a dance cut, but then I had a cut with an artist named Dante Thomas, who's incredible artist, good friend of mine to this day. Um, he was signed to Prize Michelle from the Fuji's label. And he was on to Electra, and we did a song called Wait for the Day. And that was my first cut. And I was just like, so it was such a wild experience going to, right. the, going to the hit factory in New York to, you know, to vocal this, produce the song and, you know, with D and work as he produced it. And then it was, that was like where I go, wow. And then after that, I think when our next cut was with uh, me and Makiba, had a, Makiba Riddick, her name is Makiba Woods now, big song. Right. We had a record with a producer named Jay Daniels. We did a song called Put Him Up with 3LW on our second album. And then I thought, wow, I'm doing it. But at that time, I still had a regular job. Like, I didn't think it, even though I had these cuts, I was like, okay, cool. But where's this going to go? But then I lost my job in 9-11. And then right. when I said, nope, I'm going to give myself a year. I had, I had, I had you know, severance pay. I'm going to give myself a year. I need to take it to another level. If I can't take it to another level in a year, then I'm just going to get it and go back to work. And then within that year, we got, me and Makiba got that J-Lo record. Yep. And with LL Cool J called All I Have, and everything changed after that point. Oh, man. And like I said, I mean, to have 
to have that the that record. Like I said, I remember when because like I said, the, I'm millennial, right? So I'm old enough to remember when we played music videos on TV, and we played. You know, you could go to school you know, like in the morning time before school. You could watch music videos on MTV, and you could watch then after school. You could go to BET and watch music videos from like one to five. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you could see, and I remember that video being played all the time. I remember that song and that video being played on MTV all the time. <laughs> so it's interesting to now, you know, it's cool when I get to do this podcast because I've interviewed my friends, Kipper Jones, people like that. And oh, who, Kipper Legend. Oh. Yes, who has who's written song. And to hear the backstories on, for instance, he told me the story of I Want to Be Down was not supposed to go to Brandy. That was supposed oh, to go. Yeah. That was supposed to go to Vanessa Williams. <laughs> and, and, oh, that makes sense because he had actually had a hit with her prior to that. He yeah, wrote, I think did he did he co-write "Running Back to You." I'm not sure. We yeah, it was the, the Comfort Zone. He did a bunch of songs. The Comfort Zone, right? He did Comfort Zone. The Trevor Gale did "Running Back to You." He did right. the Comfort Zone. He did a couple other records. So that yeah. would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, he's and he remember him telling me he said he said he didn't work with Vanessa. They said, "Look, we got this 14 year old girl who we really love." You think that you know we want to cut this record? He's like, Man, I don't work with kids, but you go cut the record anyway. <laughs> and then she cut the record one take. And he said, "Well, there it goes. I was wrong." <laughs> and you know that ended up being Brandy. Um, I forgot the first word. I want. It might have been baby. It might have been. Uh, oh, well, it was. I want to be down. You know. And so it's interesting when I when I when I interview my friends like yourself and I hear the backstories of how these songs got created. It's like, wow. I grew up listening to these songs and now they call these people my friends. You know, people who it's like, this is this is so cool. So I just want like I said, I just want you to know how 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 awesome it is to hear these stories and to know because again, we can't live without music. We can't live what you mean, Curtis, to society and the work that you do, please know it means everything. Okay, it means everything with the work that you do and the time that you put into these songs that have shaped people's lives, whether in a big or small way, uh, your work matters, man. So, but like you said, that, that, that change, I know that changed a lot for you when you had that big record, because a lot of people get a number one record like that and to know how to handle that type of success. I think it's, it is another thing too, because how, how to gauge that, how to go about it after that happens is so key too. Um, that's why mentorship is so important, you know, of how to actually yeah. deal with that, how to handle success, man. Um, yeah, yeah. Mentorship is very important. And that's why um, now it's funny you should mention because I'm working on a, um, a music education program. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we're, 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 we're called the Flock Formation, but we are we have a um, a camp a one uh, a a program called One Campus, and basically our our goal is to reach uh, music create creatives around the world. So this mm-hmm. is a movable program. We're gonna we're gonna collaborate with other programs. Hopefully, we can collaborate with uh, New School Rules and yeah. different you know different organizations just to bring more awareness to the creative in regards. So we'll we'll do courses in regards to music business. You know, having how to navigate the industry, deal with you know topics that are like kind of taboo. Absolutely. Um, there's some creative um uh, installations as well, and then we we'll also have a mental health component as well that we're going to be collaborating with um, a wonderful mental health practitioner named uh, Chuck Wilson. Um, so we definitely 
you know, me and Angelique Sinalu um, are are definitely uh, the uh, developers of the educational piece for music education. But then you have Jay Edmond, Ricardo Sims, um, Alex Frederick, Shelton Rose, um, Daniela, and uh, our team was really pretty strong. So we have a really good team. Um, but getting back, mentorship was important for me because I was mentored. Um, I've I've mentored other songwriters. I've helped develop songwriters throughout my time. Um, and I, I want to continue to do that. I have an artist producer named Adrian Lewis, who I've been working with for a time. I can't wait till you guys hear his music. It's incredible. Um, and then there's an African artist named World, who I've known for quite some time, with World with a U, who's taking over the world and the African scene. So there's just so many different artists and writers that I've been attached to that I've you know, work with that I've kind of helped to shepherd um, and support their careers because, you know, it's important to have support and to have a little bit of guidance. Um, one of my favorite artists, his name is Duvall. He's from the group Disciples who did How Deep Was Your Love with, Ke with uh, Calvin Harris. He's mm -hmm. a very good friend of mine. And, you know, he's also, I've seen him grow and now he's mentoring and developing other artists. So it's, I think when you do it the right way, I think what ends up happening is the people that you open the door for, you help support, they then pay it forward to those behind them. I totally agree. I this totally is how agree. it works. And so, you know, see like Angelique Sinalu, who I worked with in the beginning, now she's, you know, working on these massive sync projects. She's worked with Distel, John Legend, all these artists and her and her husband, Brian Kennedy, who's Brian Kennedy did Disturbia for Rihanna, Forever for Chris Brown and mm. Clarkson, Mr. Know-It-All and Jennifer Hudson, mm. you know, so, it, you know, you, you I'm surrounded by greatness. You know, Charlene Gilliam, we did the Rihanna project. We produced Rihanna's Final Goodbye together, which was our my first production credit as the conglomerate, which is amazing. She worked with Melanie Fiona and all these other artists. So, and it, it's just, the list goes on and you see that. And you see what McKeever's done. McKeever's, yes. she wrote, you know, Root Boy for Rihanna, you yeah. know, Deja Vu for Beyonce. All these freaking <laughs> dressed and all these songs. So right. it's just, you know, it's it's wonderful to see people and to meet people in the beginning and to see them flourish and grow. And Absolutely. so if for nothing, I'm just there to encourage and help lift up in areas where they need lifting. And I think that that's the basis of supporting artists. Absolutely. This is the craft. You know, I just had the opportunity to speak at a seminar time of this recording a couple of days, about, you know, a few days ago, and to see the show, artist showcase, to see these kids who clearly uh, believe, you know, want to do this, but also I said there's levels to this. And and you could see, because we had, there's about nine acts that was evaluated as kind of like part of the artist showcase. And then there were the five guest performers that performed. And you could just kind of see the level of, the level of talent just the way they crafted the, the show performance, you know, uh, you could tell it was elevated compared to the ones who were kind of just starting out. Like mm -hmm. this thing, I like one thing I told him, I said, look, just continue to do what you're doing. Like this is a long, this is a long process. Nothing about this happens quickly overnight. So it's a matter of just keeping 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 your dream alive and that but also putting yourself in positions to be successful, getting the help, getting the mentorship where it's needed because because you, this is a real craft. This is not, and unfortunately, I feel like music of, over the years, especially nowadays, has become a hustle, and people don't want to put their ten thousand hours in. 
people don't want to put the type of time it takes to craft success and to do this at the level they want to do it at. You know, so I think it's so important to understand that it takes time and that your journey is uniquely your own and nobody else has the same exact journey that 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 you may have. You know what I mean? So I really believe that. I mean, I think that's the I think that's the key. Um it's I, I believe in being a developer, I call it, I I consider myself a developer, meaning yeah. I have a vision. So when I see people or when I see things in this embryonic stage, I can actually see the possibilities and I can see where things will go. So yeah. I always say, you know, always say the early word gets the worm. I'm always early. Yeah. So I can look at someone or something and say, okay, that has potential to do great things. Even when yeah. no one else can see the yeah. greatness in something, I can see it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of my biggest qualities, I think. You know, I mean, listen, I believe that we all talented. Some, you know, we all have our own special gifts. But I, yeah. I believe that for me, identifying things early has been, and people early, and, and I think has been my greatest attribute. And, I, and I'm so grateful to God for that. So in, in my journey, even as I traveled overseas and pursued other genres of music, I did it early. Yeah. I did it when people thought, oh, God, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? I just see I, that's the next thing. When I did the Asian swing, yeah. was crazy. And you're talking about 2006. I was already yeah. I was, I was going in that. I was doing it. Yeah. They're like, why are you doing that? When I was in Europe, people were like, why are you going to Europe? This is like years ago. So yeah. it's, just, it's just because you have to follow your intuition and you have to lead and lead with your vision. I believe that. I definitely believe that, man, uh, for sure. And you've had a chance to work. You mentioned some of the names, man. You've had a chance to work with artists like BTS, John Legend, um, David Guetta, Tiesto, Josh Stone. Craig David, Deborah Cockers, and then a few. And, but like I said, you had a chance to, you know, expand internationally and have some hits on artists like Taemin and Kumikota, Toshinki, you know, and in those markets. And talk to me about expanding overseas. You just touched on it, but I mean, just how much that's impacted your career because I'm a guy that believes in being global. That's why that matters to me because I'm a guy that believes in, especially if I'm working with new artists. I say, hey, your, your, your audience may not be here in America. It may be someplace totally different, and it's okay if nobody knows you in this country. But but you can go to other parts of the world. They love you. So I think that that was so cool to know that you were, expand, in your case, expanding your career uh, to work in some places that I'm sure you you just knew that I wanted you. You had a vision to do that. Um. Yeah, I did have a vision Um. to do it. Um, I think I, I've led by, I, I I tend to go for the things that are not the obvious. So I think I'm a, as a music lover, I'm listening to everything and I, I'm just driven by the idea of, oh, okay, I don't want to write one genre. I want to explore other genres. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start off doing like urban music, you go, okay, cool. I want to do pop. I want to do K-pop. I want to do J-pop. I want to you know, do alternative rock. Mm. So when I went overseas, I was able to do any and everything. I didn't have any limits. So back when I started, you had to kind of, you know, you marketed yourself, you had to be in a genre, like you're an urban yeah. writer, you're a pop writer. 
overseas, I didn't have to do that. I can write anything, do anything. So I did everything. And that experience changed the landscape of my career and my mentality about how I approach music and, um, and, 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 and everything. And so when I, when I came back to the United States, I felt like, okay, it wasn't so important for me to make it in the U.S. Like, you know, so I got to get this Beyonce cut or I got to get this big cut because, you know, I had the big cuts in the beginning and I thought, okay, now that that's out the way, yeah, what's the rest of the world looking like? Right. Then it became like, oh, <laughs> I work with Kumi Koda. We work with Kumi Koda. We actually produced that record. She's one of the biggest artists in Japan. And yeah. it's all went to number one. So that number one was just as big as the J-Lo number one. Exactly. As, from, you know, a, from a business standpoint. From a business standpoint. Yeah. And and we're going to, we're going to touch on the business side in a second. But, you know, again, uh, at the time of this recording, the Grammy just happened um, yesterday. And I always tell people, I say, Curtis, I say, look, we're only seeing the one percent. When you, when you, the, the record companies, of course, you're only, we're only seeing the one percent of that's marketed to us. So what happens to the other ninety nine percent of people out there? You know, uh, most of the new artists in today's space will never sign a major record deal, will never be on a major scale, but they can actually go to other parts of the world. And people love them and get awards, just accredited Grammys in America, right? So, I just like you said. I mean, it sometimes doesn't matter that it may not have happened uh, in for the Grammy stage, but it could be the whole other country, and that could be the same impact in their space. And it, it feels just as good. I would say, probably, I'm sure it would feel just as good when you had the number one record in Japan. Was Kumikoto was she in Japan? She was in Japan. She's like, a, yeah. and at that point, she was at the height of her career. Cause so right. she had, um, I think she's, she was, she was selling millions of records. So the album that we did actually sold millions of albums and the single sold a million ringtones. And it was like, I think a million, a plat, like a million sales, which is in general. So that was just a, that was a big deal because, yeah. and then I would come back here and I would, you know, kind of relay that to my constituents. Like, well, we it doesn't, we don't understand it, but I always say success is success. It could be anywhere. So yeah. for me, yeah. whereas that might not have been measured really highly as in America, yeah. from a business standpoint, it was just yeah. as successful. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Just, in fact, <laughs> even did more than, than, than a JLo record because it got released on two other. It was released again twice. She did three DVD tour DVDs. It was on that. It was a commercial on three commercials, and then they made a pinball machine using it, and then they made a movie out of the song. So mm-hmm. it's also the usage, and this is where the sync and licensing comes in. Yeah, so, and there's and because people don't understand as a composer, there's uh, there's so many ways you can make income. It's not the conventional recent releasing a record. There's yeah. there's sinking, there's residual income that you get mm-hmm. collected from a performance in a mechanical, which mm-hmm. is a whole other conversation. And that's right. a lot of these young creators, they don't know the different forms of income and the yeah. way you monetize your copyright. They don't understand yeah. it yet. And that's something yeah. that I want to help with, you know, with the team that I work with to help bridge the gap so that they can understand. So they're not sitting one day and saying, oh, I signed a bad contract. I didn't know 
oh, I'm not seeing any royalty money from this record because don't want to hear that. You know, you, right. you may not have been armed with the knowledge or information. So it's important. Absol that. Absolutely. You know, that's why I was, I was just going to talk to, you know, shift to that, you know, and you try to touch on the common mistakes that, that you see a lot of songwriters making, you know, when they want to build success, you know, and, and, you know, they're kind of chasing a traditional publishing deal versus being their own publisher. And, you know, kind of, you know, talk to me about that. You know, when, when, when songwriters are chasing publishing deals, do you recommend that they chase publishing deals? I don't like the word chase. Um, I'm going to tell yeah. you my story. I never chased the publishing deal. Yeah. Um, my first big cuts when I did that, I mean... When I had the Jayla record, I'll tell you a funny story. I did a um when it when it was when it it did well, went to number one on the hot one hundred. Yeah. It came time to go to the BMI Awards. I went to the BMI Pop and Urban Awards. But when I went to the Pop Awards, I remember sitting next to Lamont Dozier, the legendary Lamont Dozier, who wrote all those Motown's hit singles for Supremes and Sony artists. Right. And he was like, Oh, you know, how's it going? I said, like, Good, I'm here for, you know, you know, I told him why I was there. He's like, well, who's your publisher? And I'm like, um, I'm my own publisher. <laughs> and he was like, whoa, wow. So he was quite shocked. He was, that's kind of, that's amazing. And it was unheard of. Um, yeah. Because um, I flew below the radar. And I, and I kind of had that mentality to fly below the radar my whole career. Right. So when it came time to accept the award, I remember walking on the stage and, you know, all the writers, you know, the writers going up there and then. You know, Big John was with EMI, and it was at the mm -hmm. another. I think a Universal was up there, and Sony, and I was by myself. Right. And I <laughs> both awards, and they were like someone over there was looking at me like, "Who, who is he represented by? Like, what's going on?" And yeah. I remember thinking, "I want to stay like this forever." But right. the is a catch twenty two. I needed someone to collect my mechanical royalties because I could collect my performance through BMI, but yeah. you need administrator collection, you know, the other royalties. And it ended up hurting me because someone was collecting my royalties on behalf overseas and I didn't even know it. Oh, wow. So then I did a publishing deal with Spirit Music Group at the time. And I remember I didn't, I didn't, I had two, two I had three offers at EMI Universal and Spirit. And they came to me because they go, wait a minute, this guy has a hit record and he has these other cuts, like the Josh Stone cut too. We yeah. got to What's going on? You know, yeah. we, we got to sign them. Yeah, and, yeah. That, and that's the, so I say that to say, put yourself in a position where you can negotiate in a way that is favorable to you. You exactly Do not chase anything. Let them chase you because then you it's not even the the financial portion of it. It's the terms. The terms are going to determine how long you're in the deal. Yeah, the quality of the deal. Yeah. And what you're able to do in the deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. No one thinks about the terms. They think, about, oh, I got this money. The money. The money. Right. The money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then you're like 12 years of slaves and you're there till forever. I had a friend of mine who had to fight to get out of their deal. Yeah. They deal way too long, but it's because of the clauses in the deal. Like, oh, well, yeah, you completed your requirement, but we have this clause. And also, too, I never wanted to be in a situation where, say, I wanted to sell my catalog and I couldn't yeah. do it. You know, what yeah. I'm saying? you got to be yeah. able to negotiate. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to think yeah. of the future. You got to think not of the current moment. You got to think of what will my what will this tenure, what will this relationship be like in four to five years? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Because I think a lot of people, even with, even with the MDRC clauses, with a lot of these contracts, you don't understand like what that really means. Because if you're in a deal, you get some upfront money. But if you if you don't complete that with those that MDRC, that might be the only check you ever get. You know, and now, you know, and now you don't spend all that money up. <laughs> you ain't delivered. You ain't delivered. Well, I felt victim too. I mean, when I did my first public deal, I, like I, you know, we all can manage our money better. I think there's a financial of course. portion that we we should have for creators in the beginning. For sure, for sure. You know, yeah. That provides some information on how to invest and set up for their retirement that nature. But yeah, you you learn through trial and error. But I could tell you this. I always tell writers and producers, think of when you get an advance, it's a non-interest loan. Yeah. So you want to pace out your advance. Yep. And you don't think of it as, okay, I got this amount of money. I could spend this money, right? Because you got to think, about, am I going to get it again? And you may you may have a successful run and, and, and make beyond that. But mm -hmm. even that, you still want to really structure it so that you can have for a longer period of time as opposed to a short period of time. Right. Um, I'll tell you, like, I remember one time I went, I think I, I went through a situation where I needed additional money. Cause you know, at that point, you know, you're, re you're renegotiating, you meet a certain threshold. And I remember yeah. at the time was like, okay, well, we'll give you this. Okay. But I didn't know. And I, I'm glad I waited because I found out that I had made twice the money mm. pipeline than what they were offering me. Mm. So had I signed that re-up for that amount, I would have been shortcutting myself. So I say that to say is have someone in your circle, your team, that can go do the due diligence to see mm. what is it that I'm worth. Right. So yeah. before I sign this deal, they could be signing me, say they signed me for, for $30,000, but I actually have 70 in my pipeline. So if I do nothing but get someone to collect it, I can get Forty thousand dollars more than what they're offering me, where I get yeah. my copyright. So it's yes, just yes, it may, yeah, exactly. That, that's a big thing because the copyright. People don't understand how important it is to yeah. control and own your copyright. You know because that lasts forever. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so you know that's all. Again, the business side of music. I always tell creatives because so the type of artists I work with, I work with new artists, right? So what I do is education and really where I start is fan building, fan engagement, that type of deal first, before we even get into music business, because I think a lot of times what the, a lot of artists want is they want to know how to build a fan base. That's why I always start there. But I, then we kind of delve into music business, but I always tell them, I say, look, you know, understand that this business, um, this business is, is going to take you in a lot of different a lot of different spaces, but you also have to understand that, you know, we're not in a place where people actually uh, are going to, are going to actually want to be there to help you navigate through the space properly and have people around you that actually care, you know, have people to be able to make sure your business manager is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Make sure your people are doing what they're supposed to be doing because like I said, you don't know how long this money is going to last and you know and, and and how to be able to live and feed and, and that's another thing too because how to actually be able to pay your pay your mortgage on time pay your 
stuff on time. Make sure you can still live the life you want to live, and 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 be and be able to be creative and still you know enjoy life at the same time. If that makes any sense. Absolutely, and it's important to have. I say dream big, create a vision for yourself. I I did a vision board. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I did, and I and I set high goals for myself because I say reach for the moon. If you don't necessarily get the moon every time, you can get the stars. I think, but also to really do your research, really treat it as a business. Understand what you need to know, some of the tools you need to know to navigate the business, because even though you have success now. Success comes in ebbs and flows, and you'll have different kinds of success. So you'll have, oh, you might have a hit hit record here, but then you might go through a period where you might get some, you know, some album cuts, or you might get something that's not as big, and then you get another big record, or you don't, or what have you. You just have to know how to navigate and, and just kind of be able to maintain yourself. Exactly. Because it, it can be tough. I've seen people come and go because they've been brokenhearted because their expectations haven't been met. You know, yeah, yeah. You, know, you gotta love it first. You can't you do, do it for the money. Days, the money, the yeah. fame. You gotta love it. That's what's gonna keep you, not any of those other things. You know, it's interesting. I talk about this off the time. Uh, to have success in the entertainment business is not always transactional. We have to do things to build relationships, right? So everything I do in order for me to help an artist, I have to do a lot of things that don't necessarily have a check attached to it. Right. That's what makes our industry a little bit different because we can't approach it like a regular job of like every task I do, I should get paid. It doesn't work like that in our space. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, and we need, to, we need <laughs> to redefine some of those roles too and how they get paid. Um, but we're essentially independent contractors. Look, con contractors, we're independent contractors. Look, I worked in, I went to school for labor studies. I remember coming into the industry thinking, we need a labor union for songwriters and producers. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. of this idea years ago, yeah, but I yeah. came to the conclusion that it's very difficult, for, even from my education, because you have to ratify in such a way where we would have to organize. Yeah, as a as a collective group or groups to say, right. these are the conditions that we want to change. These are the things that we're looking for as a collective. Right. And the demand has to be made to the corporations. The only issue is songwriting is a creative in a creative field is considered you're considered an independent contractor. Right, right. So you'll have some who'll say, "Yay, we should do a labor union." Some will say, "I don't need to do that. I'm successful. I'm not going to pay dues to something. I'm not trying to, you know, do something that may benefit the the you know the the, the overall good because." At the end of the day, I can be swapped out. So say if a label goes, okay, you don't, you're making all these demands, we'll get mm -hmm. someone else to do it. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's very yeah. difficult. I'm not saying it will never happen, but it's just becoming difficult because I do believe in fighting for your rights. Like, like the Music Modernization Act, we need that. The royalty rates need to change, absolutely. Right. But to organize a union, right. it requires leadership, trust and it, re it requires so many facets in, in in the mechanics the way the industry is it's very difficult it's like it's almost like you are a business owner and i'm a business owner yeah but we're going to have someone that organizes us to get us to get a certain cap of income whereas yeah. i was okay i get more than that i'm i don't i don't that threshold is not even as high as i need it to be 
Right. But that threshold might be good for all the other writers who are not meeting that or producers that are not meeting. Exactly. Everybody's not going to have the same. Everybody's right. not going to have the same success. This is why you see the the, the professional sports leagues have mm-hmm. union because it's not about LeBron. LeBron's going to be fine. Kevin Durant's going to be fine. What about everybody else that are going isn't going to achieve that type of success? You know, I, I totally feel what you're saying. It's not some people are going to be better than others. They're going to achieve more success, but it's about make sure everybody's good. Matter on if somebody achieves becomes multimillionaires. Or somebody just become or just having modest success, at least everybody can at least at least there's a benchmark and a threshold that everybody can at least be okay with. And I totally get it. I totally understand. Well, and that's a that's a challenge because then you're talking about you when you talk about teams like you know, baseball, like basketball, baseball, they are actually teams, they are organized out. True. You're right, you're right, right. But there are groups of organized outfits. So doing something in regards to unions is a bit more plausible there. Yeah. When it's individual, individual, individual. It's tough. It's tough. So if yeah. I say I'm not going to do this project if I only, if I don't get a certain pay, yeah, they'll go okay, fine. If you're in demand, they'll give you what you want, and even if they don't, they'll go okay, fine. We'll find someone else to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate, and it, you know what's neat. Yeah, even though we needed this, unfortunate. I, you know, that's why I always tell people like, you know, when I'm building the success that I'm trying to do and and doing it. And because, see, I've never tried to say I'm going to make people into celebrities because I always felt like the one percenters. And this is just my story. You know, my story is I chased the 99 percent because I feel like that's where I could impact more because what I really teach and share in my brand is education. So, you know, so for me to try to get you made directed, that's not really the game that I play. So therefore, me helping new artists, it's tougher because they don't have as much money to to work with a lot of time. So I have to kind of, you know, shift and do a lot of different things so that I can be able to make a little money here and there, you know, to be able to do what I need to do. Because I really do love what I do. And I really do love the fact to help new artists because they need what they, more and more, I know that they need what I do and they really value what I do. So I try to, but I also got to make it fair for myself too. You know what I mean? And that's always, that's always, can be sometimes the difficult part is making sure I'm not underchanging myself, trying to make a difference, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Because Of course. (laughs) Of course. And that's the whole idea is that you want to put yourself in a position whereby you, you got to be authentic to what your purpose is. So for me, do I want songwriters to get compensated for songs that they place? Absolutely. Right. But where does that come from? Does that come from the producer or the label? Right. Say it comes from the producer. What would encourage the producer to to do that? Because they're like, the system already provides me with an advantage. Right. So now I have to then change that. It should be changed. So that could be, to me, instead of putting on the producer, the label should be like, you know what, for for you doing the writing, we're going to, you know, but it's like, it's a catch-22 because they're like, we've never done it. We don't have to do it. Right. So songwriters have to now come up with inventive ways where they can be in demand. Like, look, you know, I can do this record, but in order for my time, I would like to have this. Right. So it's just a whole process of us figuring out a pathway to make those demands plausible. Not demands, but just saying, you know, for, for equal pay, for things of that nature, we have to put things in motion in order to 
position ourselves to get that. Well, mm-hmm. never mind. They were they were required for all of us to stick together to do that as well. Right, and I don't know if I don't know if, like you said, everybody. There's people that are that are that have achieved success that don't necessarily care about the other people coming up. You know what I mean? In this space, it is sometimes. Hey, it's it's a solo sport. You figure it out. You know what I mean? And and and, and that can also be, you know, not as not as friendly to come together when they, when everybody's kind of out there eating what they kill on their own. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's this is kind of how it's always been. And Curtis, man, this has been such a great, great episode, man. Before we get out of here, how can people find you? How can they connect to you? Well, you they know? can find me. I mean, I'm still working. I'm a Twitter guy hack, so okay, figuring that out. Um, they can find me mainly on Instagram at Curtis Richa, C-U-R-T-I-S-R-I-C-H-A. I'm pretty active on there. You can DM me if you have any questions or you just want to connect. And I'm pretty I'm pretty responsive for the most part. Um, and then there will be some more ways to find me later. Stay tuned. Just watch my Instagram space. I'll be making some announcements on some new projects that I'm working on. Wonderful, wonderful. Guys, it's been another episode of the Encouragers Fire podcast. This has been your host, Terrell Peart. Until next time, I'm out of here. Peace. Thank you. Wait a minute, what's the recording? recording? Yeah, yeah, just hit hit the record. Where is it? No, that's not what I want to do. Where's the oh where's the recording? Hold on. Oh. There we go.